You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Charles Dickens was that rarity in literature, an enormously popular novelist who, after his death, is still canonical. His books are still assigned in high schools all over the country, and even more impressively, they're still loved and read for fun by readers of every sort. I'm Michael Farmer. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Gina D'Alfonso, who says we're missing something essential in Dickens if we don't notice the degree to which his literary and moral imagination were shaped by Christian belief and practice. She's written for Christianity and Pop Culture and Christianity Today, and her new book, The Gospel and Dickens, a collection of excerpts from his novels and letters, is out now from Plow Books, and I'm delighted it's brought her here today. Thanks for coming on the show, Gina. Thanks so much for having me. Well, in addition to this book, you also edit the Dickens blog, which our listeners can access at dickensblog.typepad.com. So I think it's probably obvious that Dickens's work is personal and important to you. And I'd love to start by hearing about how you began reading him and what about his fiction has attracted and captivated you over the years. Well, I was in ninth grade and I was assigned Great Expectations an abridged version that was in our uh, literature books. And after I read that, I went out to the library and got the full version because I was, I was thinking, you know, I want more of this. And, you know, you hear so many of these stories about being assigned Dickens in high school and it can go either way. Uh-huh. You either students either say, you know, I hate this, I'm never reading this again, or I love this, I want more. It, it, it's quite polarizing, I found. So, I mean, I I, uh, I hope... I, I, I was assigned that book in ninth grade, too, and I went the other way. I, I yeah. decided I hated Dickens, and I didn't read him again. I was assigned hard times in college, but I didn't read him again until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I decided I must be missing something in Great Expectations, so I picked it back up and read it again. And, you know, it's really very good, as it turns out. Yeah. Uh, my, my hope is that someday, <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want to put a lot on teachers. They already deal with a lot already. But my hope is that someday a way is discovered to to teach Dickens and, and other uh, canonical authors as well that uh, really, really appeals to the high school population because uh, there's just so much, so much there that's good and, and wise and funny. And uh, you maybe not all ninth graders are ready for it because the language is different from what we're used to and just so many things are different from what we're used to but if you can get past that if you can if you can get through that if you have the stamina for it even i'll use that word uh you can find so much there that's good and ever since then as you say dickens has influenced my whole life and i've just enjoyed his book so much and they, there's something that I've returned to again and again uh, for entertainment and for wisdom and for so many things that I need uh, for, for imagination and for hope and encouragement. So, I mean, if <laughs> to all the ninth graders out there, if any of you are listening, you know, stick with it. It's worth it. I promise. It, it, it's kind of weird that it's ninth grade and it's it's great expectations because that seems to be the case for everybody. That's the book they read or they're made to read, mm-hmm. and that's the year they read it. And I guess it makes sense, right? Because that's a, a kind of Bill Dung's Roman about Pip, kind of mm-hmm. you know becoming an adult, and and maybe they figure ninth graders will relate to that. 
Yes, and also it just, uh, in a very practical level, it just happens to be one of his shorter novels and shorter and more concise. So, you know, in theory, it's a good one to start with, but maybe A Christmas Carol would be better because it's even shorter and people are familiar with that story from any number of adaptations. And uh, that maybe maybe that's the way to go. Sure. And what it also strikes me about both of those that you don't have to have a great deal of social background to understand them. There's there's a little bit of that in Great Expectations, but something like Hard Times or Bleak House, like there's your understanding of those books is greatly improved if you know something about Victorian society, um, right. something which perhaps uh, you can't count on ninth graders to know. Right. And, and that's a very good point because great expectations, if you have somebody helping you to make sense of it a little bit, you have that theme of that that's really timeless of the richer people looking down on the poor people and, you know, Pip feeling being made to feel inferior about himself and, you know, striving to overcome that, but in the process becoming a snob himself. So these are issues that, uh, you know, people deal with in all ages, you know, recently a, um, a middle grade novel came out, you know, for middle schoolers uh, called, uh, what's it called? Pippa Park Raises Her Game. And it's just based on great expectations. And I loved it. It's, um, it's based on a, it's about a Korean American girl who uh, goes to a ritzy school and gets looked down on it. It, it. So it's the same theme. And, and when you read that, you could just see how remarkably well these themes translate to our modern era, because these are things that just keep coming up again and again for every generation. Yeah. So it'd be good if we could get, if we could find some way to make people's experience more like yours and less like mine. And part of it is <laughs> I had the world's worst teacher in ninth grade. And I, I don't, I don't say that lightly, but she, she nearly turned me off of literature forever. And I, you oh. know, I have a PhD. I taught literature for, for years. Like it's obviously something that's central to my life. And, and I, I, I can't help but wonder what it would have been like if, if somebody, uh, I, I feel bad even saying it, but somebody a little more competent had introduced me to that book because certainly when I went back a few years ago and read it, I, I appreciated it much more. Yeah, it, it makes such a difference how you're introduced to, to not just to Dickens, but to literature in general. And uh, a, a teacher, a good teacher can make a world of difference. Uh in your introduction, you talk about a particularly pernicious rumor that's been attached to Dickens for decades. <laughs> I, I remember hearing this in ninth grade, that he was paid by the word, and that's why his writing was so dense. And it seems like a really bizarre rumor to me, because Dickens's writing doesn't seem terribly dense to me compared to really anybody else from his era. And you point out that he was definitely not paid by the word. He was paid by the installment or, or however you, however you, it'd be better to phrase that. Yeah. Why do you think that that rumor has been attached to Dickens in particular? I have never heard it about any other writer, including ones who are much wordier than him. That is a really good question. And <laughs> as you can see, I've, I've thought a lot about that. And I think it's, I wonder if it's the fact that uh, he loves words and loves to use a lot of words combined with the fact that he's the most, he's one of the most frequently taught writers, uh, classic writers in schools. So 
people are more familiar with his love of words and and um, prolific usage of words than they are with, say, Victor Hugo, uh, Herman Melville, and all those other wordy guys, <laughs> uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it may just be a case of familiarity breeds contempt because, I, I mean, it was so common then to be wordy. We're not used to it now. I mean, we, we are on the other side of, say, Ernest Hemingway and those right. guys who, who thought, you know, briefer is better. And all that has been sort of encoded in our cultural DNA. But the Victorians, man, they, they just really went to town, but, um, whichever uh, whether they were from England, America, France, uh, the writers of the um, the 1800s in general, they they went to town. I mean, <laughs> you know, people who read Victor Hugo will will go on and on about um, the the Battle of Waterloo, the sewers of Paris. You know, all these monstrously wordy digressions <laughs> he goes into. And right. So you come back to Dickens and you say, "Okay, Mr. Dickens, I'm sorry, I." was hard on you because at least you're not like that but yeah I, I think we the the wordiness I mean with Dickens it it's you can tell that he loves words and mm -hmm. I, I just think that whole paid by the word uh saying is just so cynical because that he wasn't the person to pad just for the sake of padding he really loved words and he loved writing and he loved creating these these uh, quirky characters that live on in our memories so yeah it, it's it's not that he was um you know doing it for any mercenary reasons although naturally he needed to make money and and uh, knew that he needed to make money but on top of everything he just he loved painting pictures and creating people with words uh, you know it's Particularly nasty about that rumor is it it gives kids an easy way to dismiss him. So if, if they're reading Great Expectations and they find it difficult, which they should, right? Because they're in ninth grade and they're, they're kind of training themselves mm -hmm. to read adult books. Mm -hmm. it, it becomes difficult. And they say instead of, oh, I need to work harder at this or, oh, this is a little bit above my level. They say, oh, well, it's it's difficult because he was paid by the word. So I don't need to pay attention to it. I you know, I think you've nailed it. <laughs> that that is a spot on analysis. I, I think I think we say that because it gives us an easy out, rather than, so we can we can pin the blame for the difficulties all on him instead of acknowledging yes, things have changed a lot. So yes, this is gonna feel difficult, but you know he's not out there just making it harder on purpose <laughs> for me for his own sick reasons. <laughs> but it's it's wild because. The, the other two popular English novelists of that century, the ones people still read, are Jane Austen and George Eliot. And both of them, I think, are much wordier than Dickens. But you never hear that about them. I, I think Eliot is for sure. Austen, um, I, well, I, I, I guess I'm thinking at the moment in terms of length and so forth. But yes, when you get right down to it, both of them have these sort of elaborate word patterns and sentence structures and so forth. And yeah, they, they can, they can all be rather difficult. So yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Do you know if people complained of Dickens's difficulty when he was writing? I mean, cause he was enormously popular. See, that's the thing because in that time, that's what they, they were used to. They were used to like sort of the speech patterns and, and so forth. Um, that he uses 
And at, you're right, he was enormously popular um, with various classes. You know, the, the poor people loved him, and it follows them, that they were able to read him and comprehend him. So, yeah, different times. At, as they say, uh, Shakespeare wrote for the common man back in right. back in his day. So uh, we, we really have to take cultural context into account. Well, we should get to the the actual substance of your book. I, I just I did want to talk to you about the that rumor since you you brought it up in your introduction. But Dickens lived in a time where cultural Christianity reigned in Europe. But at least for my part, I have not tended to think of him as a Christian author the way I think of other authors in the series from Plow, like Dorothy Sayers or Gerard Manley Hopkins. What was Dickens's religious background and training, and what were his religious beliefs as an adult? He grew up in the Church of England, you know, as, as was common in that time and place. Uh, and so basically he was he was pretty much in the mainstream religious tradition. Now, a lot has been made of his what I call flirtation with Unitarianism. And that that was that was a real thing. He he was interested in it for a time. He had Unitarian friends. I think he. He, you know, tried out uh, their their meetings, their gatherings, and so forth. But he never really left the Church of England. Uh, I, I think, and he wasn't much of one to get really down and dirty with the theology, so to speak. He wasn't one to really, he, he didn't like theological debates and disputes. He didn't really dig into the doctrine. But, uh, I mean, there is very strongly running through his works there are the the christian themes of of sin and guilt and redemption and salvation uh that that are very clearly christian when you when you come to look at them and uh i mean you clearly have a belief uh in redemption through christ and and it's not just it's not just running under the surface. He makes it very explicit sometimes. Uh, the the death scene of Joe, the street sweeper in Bleak House, is a, a famous example as mm -hmm. uh, Magwitch's uh, deathbed, Sidney Carton's um, night in Paris when when he he prays for redemption. I mean, I, I, he is not. It's not like he sets out to write a book with a Christian message in it, which is something that uh, some Christian writers go way, way overboard with and, and make it more propaganda than anything. But you can see these things made a great, meant a great deal to him, and he really believed them by the way he, put, he works them into his books and the way he brings them up at key moments. And uh, that they, um, I mean, there are, there are moments when everything hinges on them. And, and I, I had a letter in the book that he wrote, or I, I quoted from a letter where he said that, you know, all my good characters are pretty much draw on the New Testament. Uh, so, you know, he, he knew what he was doing. And, um, you know, this was an age, you mentioned cultural Christianity, where, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the of real belief was sort of eroding, you know, Darwinism was coming to the fore and so forth. Um, and, and so it was sort of a, a transitional moment 
for the faith, but but Dickens, you could see him sort of holding on to his beliefs that, well, they may have been rather basic and simple in their way, but also sincere. Um, you, you can see that that this idea of sin and guilt and, and redemption mean a great deal to him. I mean, that's what a Christmas Carol is all about. You don't, you can't have a Christmas Carol without that. And I mean, he even people people tend to say sometimes that a Christmas Carol sort of set the the standard, started the tradition of secular Chris, Christmas literature. And in a way, perhaps that's true. But I mean, Christianity is everywhere in that story too. So you know, it, it's it's just there. <laughs> when you when you look for it, you find it. Yeah, it's a real transitional uh, work. So let's talk about a Christmas Carol. Um, your your uh, your book is divided into three sections, and the first one is uh, is about sin. And so you start with this very familiar character, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is one of the clearest portrayals of avarice in all of literature. It's, you know, Scrooge is essentially a a byword for avarice in in English. Mm-hmm. Um, he appears in your book. Uh, as an example of his treatment of sin, how would you characterize his particular form of sinfulness? Well, Dickens was very, very concerned about the poor and the way that they were treated by the rich. And so it stands to reason that perhaps his most famous character and his most well-known sinner, <laughs> uh, to use the word that he uses himself, is a person who is greedy, who is full of avarice and stingy and selfish. So um, the, the book was inspired originally uh, when he was, he was giving a talk, I think, in Manchester and, and just... He was concerned about, um, you know, cultural trends and legislation and all these things that that were hurting the poor and just the lack of concern for them. And he first thought of writing a pamphlet, but thank God he wrote a story instead because that was his gift. That was the gift that God gave him. And with using that gift, he came up with a story that that just, you know, hits us where we live because greed and avarice, they they are such common temptations. And, you know, getting wrapped up in ourselves and forgetting about those who need us is just the easiest thing in the world to do. And so this is him and, and this story coming out again every Christmas, you know, people reading the book and watching the movies again every Christmas is just our constant reminder uh, to, you know, look around us and see how we can help others, which for Dickens was the biggest thing that Christianity ought to be inspiring us to do. You mentioned the many, many, many pop cultural adaptations of that novella. Do you you think they've largely gotten Dickens's understanding of Scrooge's sinfulness right? Or are they missing something? And I know I'm asking you to talk about a very large group of adaptations. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, you know, there are <laughs> there are so many uh, versions out there. I don't know if anybody has seen them all, really. But a lot of them do a very good job 
they they really do. Um, even the Muppets Christmas Carol, perhaps especially the Muppets Christmas Carol, because I was going to say I it, think that's the best one. It's one of those one. adaptations that really draws on on Dickens and, and actually incorporates his words into the text. It's very respectful of Dickens, so you know I, I admire that, and and I think I think a lot of these versions do get it right. Now there was a version that came out a mini series from the BBC last year. I don't know if you saw it. Um, it I did it not. Aired, I, did, I missed that. It aired here on FX. Uh, the FX network. And I actually wrote up a little piece on this for Christ and pop culture, um, which should, shouldn't be uh, hard to find online. Uh, we'll link to that I, in the show notes to this episode. Okay, great. Uh, and, and it was sort of a Christmas carol for this era where uh, one of the things I noticed about our contemporary culture, our, our cultural moment right now is that so many people are calling for justice in various areas and and they don't see justice happening and they despair because they if you don't believe in God, redemption, an afterlife, ultimate justice and ultimate mercy, uh, you're just left despairing here on earth thinking, you know, there's no justice, there's no goodness, there's nothing. Uh, and, and this version of Christmas Carol was very much, I think, in that vein because it, it sort of left you on a on a little bit of a despairing note. And it, it sort of left Scrooge to, to try to earn his own salvation rather than um, finding redemption and forgiveness on that night once he repented. So you, you see how Dickens was was really very Christian with what he accomplished there and how if you leave that out, you get something that leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. Because, you know, the the the, the cry for justice, the need for justice and redemption is very, very real. Uh, but if we, if we don't believe that uh, these are things that really do exist and everything will be made right one day, then uh, the the Christmas Carol message and the Christian message in general, um, we, we can't, we, we can't achieve the hope that's found there. We can't find it. Yeah. So, so even, even when Christ himself seems to be absent from that story, mm -hmm. the, the kind of trajectory of Scrooge's life in the story shows that he's there behind the scenes. Exactly. You point out that, uh, a lot of Dickens's most vicious characters are clergymen, like Mr. Bumble from Oliver Twist or Mr. Chadband from Bleak House. Mm -hmm. You argue that it's religious hypocrisy that Dickens is critiquing rather than Christianity itself. But uh, how does he portray characters like these, and how does that negative image help us to understand what he thinks Christianity should be instead? What really bothered him and distressed him was the gap between what he saw that he thought that Christianity should be doing and what it was doing. Uh, and uh, one of the unforgettable images from Bleak House, and, and I included it in this book, is uh, Joe, the street sweeper, the little boy uh, with, with, you know, no one to take care of him sitting on the, the literal doorstep of, of um, 
a Christian charity or a church. I forget now what, what it was, but it was either a Christian organization or an actual church uh, sitting there alone and, and uh, shivering and having no one to take care of him. And, you know, a lot of the Christians in the book are more interested in helping, you know, doing campaigns to help people abroad and ignoring the poor on their very doorsteps. So, uh, you know, he can, he can be quite, quite vehement about these things. And uh, it, it was because he, I mean, he loved Jesus's message about, um, you know, helping the poor, doing good to your neighbor, loving your neighbor, having compassion, all these things. And when he didn't see the church fulfilling these commands, uh, he took it upon himself to do a little um a little policing, a little calling out of the church because he he uh, he wanted it to be better than it was. Still, I mean, it's the it's the nastiness of those characters that really sticks with us. Are, are there any um, are there any virtuous clergymen in Dickens's canon? There are. Uh, yes, I, I'm. I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head in in our mutual friend in um, Little Dorrit. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm missing some, and I'm I'm going to uh, kick myself after this for missing them. But um, yeah, there there are good clergymen. There are uh, good and kind uh, Christians. Um, and, and some there are moments when um, a good character is specifically called out as Christian. For instance, uh, Joe Gargery in Great Expectations, when you know Pip has he's only ever been kind to Pip. Pip has treated him like dirt, and then when Pip is sick and in debt and all alone, Joe comes back to take care of him, and you hear Pip praying, "God bless this gentle Christian man." So Dickens leaves you in no doubt as to who exactly Joe is and what motivates him. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, when you see a Dickens character who really has faith like that, you know, a humble faith that motivates him to forgive and to do good. I mean, that stays with you as an example of the best, some of the best that uh, we can be. It seems to me that Dickens's writing can help us understand a very, timely debate in conservative Christian circles in 2020, which mm -hmm. is what degree ought we think of sin as a personal or individual thing? And what degree ought we think of it as structural and social? And I don't think it'll be at all controversial to say that Dickens privileges structural sin over personal sin, um, just in general. But what role does the individual play in his formulations of what sin is? That's a terrific question. Uh, I, I've, I've heard it said, and I tend to agree with this, that um, the older he got and the more he observed, the more he started to feel a little bit hopeless about the state of the, about society and its institutions. Uh, more and more you see him start to to um, show that the individual has to do what he or she can in a society that is 
largely, you know, cold and indifferent and hidebound and not wanting to change. So he wasn't exactly revolutionary in his outlook. He wasn't calling for, you know, blood in the streets or anything like that. That wasn't his way. I think he would have liked to see a lot of things change, a lot of institutions change, but he just sort of lost a little confidence that that change on a massive scale could happen. But you you see you see this fixation on individuals. So if, for instance, the end of Little Dorrit, which is one of his later books, um, where he he sort of shows that society hasn't changed much in general, and yet individuals can change and they can make things better in their own sphere and they can make things better for themselves and they can they can find happiness and then after that comes the tale of two cities which is an openly revolutionary story and which i think is so timely for us now because you have you have um the the french revolution with the rich oppressing the poor and then the poor rising up and oppressing the rich and this awful cycle of hate and violence that just keeps going and keeps going and yet in the midst of this uh one character Sidney Carton does something that is so noble and selfless and self-sacrificing that it changes life for one family forever and so so things like that and and um you know he Dickens holds out hope that someday uh things will get better. He's not quite sure how they will get there, but he's positive that one thing that has to happen is individuals doing all they can in their own sphere and in their own way, even if it seems like a limited way. Yeah. I, you wonder what he would make of the events of the last few years, what he would make of the pandemic, what he would make of Black Lives Matter and all the other kind of social unrest we're looking at, because in some ways I think we're living in Dickens's world. I think in a lot of ways we are. He was he was very observant of of how these things worked. He he wasn't uh, and, and as I said, he wasn't always sure what the solution should be. He he wasn't a political writer per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, he a social I, writer maybe. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. I mean, he had he had dabbled a bit in uh, political reporting in his younger days, he didn't really like it that much. I, I think po- politics sort of disgusted him and wearied him. And I, I think he just saw the limits of it. I mean, as important as politics is, I, I think he saw that, uh, you know, that this, this has its limits. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of me first involved. Uh, there's a lot of selfishness. And so, he was he was sort of looking for something beyond that and and i think um for that's for him that's where stories of individual redemption came in and 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 if an individual could be redeemed then maybe there was a way that that society could change and things could get better and and, and a lot of things could be redeemed some of his books made a difference, right? In, in terms of changing kind of social structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in, in their own way, they did. Uh, Nicholas Nickleby, for example, um, with its portrait of an absolutely vicious boys' school, um, it, it sort of got people thinking about <laughs> about the educational system and maybe what what 
what were some of the things that needed to change there. Um, a Christmas Carol definitely had effects on society, um, cha changed some things. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't as if, again, it wasn't as if Dickens laid out a specific program and said, here's what you need to do. But he did get people thinking. And, and right. sometimes um, sometimes it, it did cause things to change for the better. Well, and I, I think I think probably not giving specific solutions is, is one thing that's helped his writing endure mm -hmm. uh, more than a century later. Because if, if he had been very specific about the solutions, and those weren't the solutions that were implemented, uh, the book would feel kind of um, oh, out of out of date, I guess is what I'm, I'm thinking of. Um, Richard Wright's Native Son, which is a great novel for about 150 pages, and then it turns into a tract for the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, to Dickens credit, he doesn't really do that. There's no, there's no tracks in anything I've read by him. He's, he, he, if he's a reporter, he reports on the problem and, and kind of demands that we come up with a solution. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, a Christmas Carol was originally going to be a pamphlet and if it had been a pamphlet, uh, I'm sure it would have been a, tremendously well-written one, um, maybe maybe we would still be like learning to recite it in speech class or something like that. Maybe it would be, you know, um, enshrined with some of our great documents like the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But I, I don't think we would keep we would keep rereading it just for fun and, and laugh and cry over it and keep doing it on stage every year and all of us have our favorite movie versions. I mean, it would right. not have had, it would not have shaped our culture and become part of our lexicon the way that it has. Yeah. You wonder what, uh, what cultural reference sitcoms would use when they have to come up with their Christmas episode. Exactly. I guess I, they'd still have, it's a wonderful life. I don't think there's a TV series I've ever watched that hasn't had, um, a Christmas Carol based episode or, or something like that. Um, or I, I mean, so many movies use it as, as a reference. It's, it's just, it's just in the air we breathe. And, and I mean, how many authors have accomplished something like that? Right. Yeah. Basically none or, you know, there's probably five or six of them. Um, the great failure of his personal life, was his abandonment of his wife and family in 1858 to live with the young actress, Ellen Turner. I think she was 18 or 19 and he was in his forties. Mm -hmm. He lived with her for the remainder of his life, I believe. Now only an ideologue demands that every writer live up perfectly to his own ideals. But mm -hmm. this one is particularly galling yes. because Dickens presents a vision for the family in his fiction. And I, I'm just wondering if the events of his life undermine that vision. Well, that, again, is a really good question and a really tough one. Um, I think that, you, you know, it, it is, for those of us that love his work, it, it is a sad disappointment. Uh to, to know that he did this. He, he didn't, uh, just to be uh, precise, he didn't, he didn't actually, he, he uh, took custody of most of the children. Um, oh, you know, excuse me. That uh, his, and, and he didn't really live with Ellen so much as 
continue to visit her. But but these are these are just details. <laughs> but what I'm what I'm getting at there is that his he did break with his wife. He he was bitterly unfair to her. That he he wronged her definitely. He did still you know keep relationships with his children. Um, it, it naturally, especially I think with the older children, it, it of course it put a tremendous strain on the relationship. They still loved him very much. He still loved them very much, but you know they knew he had done this great wrong to their mother, and you know that's going to change your relationship. Um, but yeah, it it um, it it's. It was a tragic wrong that he did, and and he failed to live up to his own standards. And um, you know, there, there's just no getting around that. Uh, at the same time, you and I, I, you do see in his later works. I think Great Expectations, particularly, a sense that he 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 knew guilt fairly well <laughs> let's put it sure. like that uh he he knew what it was to feel guilty to know that he had done wrong to know that he needed redemption and and uh he wrote that there are a couple of instances that you you read about where he, for instance um his daughter Mamie wrote that that uh, she saw him you know break down and and admit that he had he had uh driven his other daughter, Katie, to, to, into an early marriage because she wanted to get out of the house. He, he, he wrote to his friend Angela Burdette Coots, um, uh, who was an heiress and philanthropist that he often worked with. He wrote to her that he knew uh, he, he was in need of redemption. So he, he knew, he, he, he tried to, he sort of tried to carry it off in public and, you know, not, not, um, you know, just keep his head up and, and uh, not, you know, come across as ashamed or anything, but, but inside, you know, he, he knew he had done wrong and, um, how, how he, how exactly he squared that with himself. I, I mean, we don't have a lot of information on that, but, but he knew it and it, it sort of came out in, in what he said and what he wrote. And, um, I, I think he, he knew that he stood in need of that gospel that he believed in and uh, he knew he had not lived up to it, but, but he needed it. And so um, <laughs> goodness knows we've all had that moment in our life. Even if we've, you know, even if we're not dealing with the fallout of a marriage that we've wrecked or whatever, we, we've all had that, those moments where, you know, we, we just did wrong and there's no getting around it and we need a savior. What's interesting to me about Dickens, I wrote a book on John Updike, and Updike leaves his wife, um, his first wife and his family, and it becomes the dominant subject of his fiction for 20 years. Mm. And and Dickens' fiction seems to me to be so unautobiographical mm-hmm. that it, it, I imagine, uh, you're, you're the expert here, not me, but I imagine it's hard to trace his feelings about his... Um, his actions in the fiction itself. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, he, the most autobiographical of his books was David Copperfield, which came out well before the split. So there you get his feelings about his childhood and um, the sense of loss and abandonment he felt at the hands of his own parents 
and how that haunted him throughout his life. And um, without getting overly Freudian, <laughs> you, you know, I, I've, I've read some 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 interpretations of of that, you know, that sort of feeling that stayed with him all his life. It, it, you know, you do get a little bit into the Freudian aspects because uh, of how how your parents wound you. Because um, I mean, that was a, a huge driving force in his own life. But um, that is not that can't excuse the things that he did it, that it, it may have, uh, sort of, it, it, it shaped him enormously. Um, but it, it's not an excuse. Sure. The, the second section of the book deals with repentance and grace. And you present an excerpt from a tale of two cities mm -hmm. that has to do with the character Sidney Carton, who you say is a quote, Christ figure who was himself desperately in need of redemption. Mm. That is a that is a very interesting turn of phrase, and it's not something you see a lot in literature. What does it say about Dickens's theology that you have this guy who is simultaneously a Christ figure and in need of redemption? Uh, well, that's <laughs> I'm glad you asked about that passage because uh, that's a great favorite of mine, probably my favorite passage in all of Dickens, oh, wow. um, and I think. I think it just comes back to his recognition that all human beings need redemption and can't find it on their own because, uh, I mean, here's this family, they're desperately in need of saving, you know, from the forces that are trying to kill them. And Carton recognizes that he is capable of saving them, you know, if he's willing to sacrifice himself. And so, I mean, that's, probably the most Christ-like thing you could possibly do for somebody else. Uh, um, you know, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life. Um, so that is what it makes him, in strictly literary terms, a Christ figure. But Carton is also a man who has, by his own admission, wasted his life, uh, been a hopeless alcoholic, uh, never done anything, you know, worth doing, um, a person who's very, very hard on himself. And so he has to have his own come to Jesus moment, quite literally, in order for his own redemption to be achieved. So there's this double redemption going on here, uh, both um, on the purely human level and then on, on the, a case of divine redemption, which I, I just think is so incredibly powerful and speaks to our spiritual needs so well. Yeah, as, as Scrooge is not incapable of redemption, Carton, whatever good he does, is not, he, he still needs redemption. Exactly. Uh, you'll think of us a passage from Bleak House in which Sir Lester, who is an otherwise nasty Scrooge-like baron, expresses his love for his young wife even after he discovers that she has born a child out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. What's he trying to say about sin and redemption through that character? Um, that that is that is a very touching passage, and I, I believe I quoted uh, Rowan Williams on that one. It, it's he, he used it in a book of his own, uh, which which I, and I, I was very moved by the way that he he discussed it. Um, he it, it's 
it's a case of, and, and, and this is not terribly common with Dickens, but it's a case of one of his, his uh, sort of rich, self-absorbed, totally out of touch characters suddenly revealing this, this kindness and tenderness and forgiveness that you never would have dreamed would have been in him. And so um, this is a case of Dickens sort of finding the Christ-likeness in someone where you might not ever expect to find it. Mm-hmm. And that, that too seems like something that would be very, very good to keep in mind in a cancel culture. Mm-hmm. That no matter no matter how awful a person appears to us, and of course, a lot of times people's awfulness is is dictated to us by whatever social media circles we run in. But it, it might be helpful to remember that they too love somebody yes. in all likelihood. Yes. Yeah, and that takes me back to the, the last year's Christmas Carol uh, miniseries again, because that it, it that struck me as very much a Scrooge for the cancel culture. Um you know, Scrooge can't be canceled altogether because that's not how the story goes. But there's great, great, great emphasis and focus on how he really deserves to be canceled. Whereas Dickens gave us, gave him to us in all his, you know, um, self-centered glory. And yet, you know, he didn't stint on on the on the descriptions. You know, a, a wretched. Uh, I can't remember the passage now, uh, a squeezing, grasping, miserly old sinner, all these things. And, and so Dickens doesn't hold back on telling us how sinful he is, but that he assures us that, yes, even this great sinner can be redeemed. And that's what gives you the joyful conclusion. And with that, so without that belief, again, you get cancel culture where, you know, we, yes, we see that someone has done wrong, and because we can't fathom any other way to treat this wrongness, we're just like, wipe this person off our radar, he's done. Whereas if we believe in Christ, we can say this person has done an awful thing, um, but Christ died for him too, and you know, he, he is in God's hands to deal with, God can exercise justice and mercy and you know we should hope and pray for his redemption so that that's how you know that that's how that's what christians bring to this culture and and dickens helps show us the way here i want to talk about a common critique of him which is that his vision of goodness in particular is a a very sentimental thing and maybe maybe it's more emotional than it is believable uh, do you think the charge of sentimentality in his work is a fair one? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, but I, I would simply go on to add that that's not all there is to him. He he can be very sentimental. He can be overly sentimental. I will freely admit that because... And he know, lived in a sentimental age. So did. in some ways, it's not his fault. Yes, he, he did. You know, when he wrote The Old Curiosity Shop... Uh, Famously, there's the death of Little Nell in that, which is a very sentimental uh, treatment of the death of a child who was, you know, too good for this world. And Victorian readers were tremendously moved by this. Um, And, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, you know, famously, Americans were clamoring when when, uh, 
that installment of the novel finally came to, to our shores. They were clamoring to find out what happened to Little Nell. So, you know, the sentiment, yeah, it, it was very, very cultural. It went over big with his readers. Um, <laughs> and then later on, not so much. As uh, Oscar Wilde, it, not all that much later. It may, I... I um, I forget Wilde's dates right now, but, you know, it wasn't that much later when Oscar Wilde said you'd have to have a heart of stone to read The Death of Little Nell without laughing. And so <laughs> the sentiment sort of went out eventually, and uh, I don't think it ever came back in again quite as heavy as it had been with the Victorians. Um, you know, we all, all generations, I guess, have had their sentimental uh, stuff going on. But the Victorians, they really took the cake there. So, uh, yeah, these days, Little Nell is not as popular as she was then. Uh, and the sentimental well, Tiny stuff, Tim re retains his popularity. And the, the whole Tiny Tim thing in A Christmas Carol is so yeah. sentimental to me. Maybe it helps that he doesn't he doesn't die. That's true. That's <laughs> and, true. And maybe Dickens had already got that out of his system with with Nell and uh, didn't need to have Tiny Tim die. Plus, plus, it wouldn't have fit the mood of the end of that book. But um, yeah, and and uh, perhaps it helps too that we don't see as much of Tim as we had seen of Nell. So Dickens simply doesn't have time to be sentimental about him as, as he was before. But. Uh, yeah, so so he can go way overboard with the sentimentality, but I think he's saved by his sense of humor um, and by his ability to genuinely go very dark and and uh, grim and powerful. Uh, what I'm saying is that sentimentality was just one facet of his mm -hmm. nature. He, I mean, he could he could uh, he could do the whole. It, he could he could be funny or dark or he could do a whole range of moods emotions ideas and so sentimentality was just a part of that and thank goodness for that because uh if he were only sentimental he wouldn't have his reputation would not have survived his books wouldn't have survived the way they have but he can do so much more than be sentimental and that's that's what has kept him so popular yeah he, he kind of has one foot in that in that 19th century sentimental fiction genre, but it's, it's just one foot. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm trying to think of the dreadful American novel that gets bandied about for sentimentality. The, the wide world, I think it's called, it's like 750 very lachrymose pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We Americans have, have uh, had our share of, of that. Oh, my Elsie Dinsmore. I mean, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that uh, on all kinds of levels, poor Elsie is a disaster. And uh, yeah, so we, we Americans have more than had our share of that. Well, I, I think it really it really demonstrates the degree to which Dickens is both a popular novelist and a literary novelist. Because mm -hmm. um, that, that sentimentality is something I associate much more with with the popular novels. Um, you, you don't see it as much in the canonical authors, even of the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, nobody would ever call George Eliot sentimental. Nobody would call Henry James sentimental. But That's Dickens right. gets that because because he's both popular and literary. Mm. That that's an excellent point. Yeah, and also um, also when you look at the chronology of it, um, Eliot and James and and Hardy too came 
came later. Um, so that's true. They yeah. had sort of you know got beyond. Although Hardy, <laughs> I have I sort of have a grudge against Hardy for like. I mean, he sort of stacks the deck on you in his own way. I mean, everything, like, in in a novel like um, Jude the Obscure, everything that goes wrong that could possibly go wrong. (laughs) So maybe, maybe he, I mean, like, the whole universe sets itself up to conspire against you. So, you know, maybe he's not sentimental per se, but he just really just... He he comes on, he, he pours it on pretty heavy in his own way. So I, I would uh, say there's a sentimental pessimism, and the Hardy's a pretty good exemplar of it. There, there you go. That sentimental pessimism. That's 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 the term for it. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, but you you do make a good point though about um, uh, the the sentimental part being popular. Yeah, that that's. Uh, more than more than just the chronology of it, you know, Dickens li- living in a certain moment of at, of time and absorbing that culture. Uh, I, I think it's also a function of his, um, you know, writing for the masses and knowing what people love to read and what would keep them on the edge of their seats and what would make them cry and so forth. The final section of your book presents Dickens's views on righteous living. What virtues does he posit as necessary for righteousness? Well, um, he, again, his focus was um, very much on the individual and the possibility of the individual achieving redemption. And, and once you have done that, just um, modeling yourself, so to speak, after Christ. Um, again, I, I refer to that letter where he talks about his virtuous characters all, all um, you know, take their virtues from the New Testament. So the, those virtues that are important to him are, you know, generosity, kindness. Um, you see a lot of his, his characters who get redeemed, you see them moving from like total self-absorption to selflessness, uh, willing to get out of themselves, to to um, to reach out to the world around them, to to help the needy, and to and and um, he he's not the sort of person to say you know um, leave all, leave your business behind and and um, you know go. Um, go into ministry or whatever but but he is the sort of person to say you know wherever you are placed in life whether you're in business or whatever you're doing um find use use that place to benefit those around you um you know you find your opportunities and use them to help others to be good to others um so it's it's very um it's a very sort of practical virtue you might say um a a a way to reach out and to better the world around you well as i said in the introduction it is quite likely that most of our readers uh, have read something of dickens probably great expectations in ninth grade and or a christmas carol um but if they haven't or if they're trying to get back into dickens where would you recommend they start other than with this book? Because obviously we want them to buy this book. But where <laughs> yes. should they move on from there? Oh, well, uh, like I was saying earlier, A Christmas Carol is a good place to start. Um, now, when, when you get into it, 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 
I do recommend an annotated version if you're sort of new to all this, um, because when you get into it, you do find some some old-fashioned turns of phrase and and imagery and things that you might need a little help interpreting. Uh, one Christmas, I um, I bought um, a, a nice version of a Christmas carol for my godchildren, and I I spent ages like annotating it with little post-it notes just to sort of help them get through it. So, oh, so that's might, that's so sweet. Did they did they appreciate it? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so yeah, definitely go for like an annotated version of A Christmas Carol. But also um, the shorter novels, just for purely practical reasons, uh, might be the way to go. Um, Great Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, I think Hard Times and, and probably Oliver Twist are among the shorter ones. And maybe the ones that are easiest for someone to start to get into when when they're new to Dickens. Um, Don't start with Bleak House is what you're saying. No, I, I wouldn't recommend that unless somebody is really just like aching for a challenge. Um, but uh, let, now if, if you want, if someone wants like what they call maybe a doorstop novel, <laughs> just like you're on vacation, you have some free time and you, you want a nice big novel to dig into, you might go for David Copperfield, which again is auto, sort of autobiographical and a wonderful coming of age story and just with some unforgettable characters and possibly also little Dorrit because, um, it's, I, I, I found it just um, a very appealing work uh, with, with some, some very uh, interesting and likable characters. There was a, uh, the miniseries came out, what, maybe 10 or so years ago, and it's still fairly popular, I think, um, the, the BBC miniseries. So there are those who will have seen that or seen part of it and be familiar with the story. So that might help them get into it too. How does he write these enormous books? I assume he wrote by hand, right? He did, yes. I just, I cannot imagine writing a 700 page novel mm. by hand, let alone writing one every two or three years by hand. I know, I know exactly what you mean, but you have to take into account that he had enormous energy. I mean, didn't he walk two or three hours a day? Yes, that oh. that was that was part of it. He he had to he had to walk uh, a certain. <laughs> I mean, he 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 would say, you know, I feel like I'm going to explode if I don't walk so many hours a day. So he had enormous amounts of energy to walk, work off, and that went into his writing just as much as it went into his walking. You know, he he writing for him was no um, no quiet and passive pastime. I mean, he would get up and go to the mirror and, and like act things out. He, <laughs> he, he, he wanted to see how a character's face might look in a certain moment or situation before he would try to write it down. And so, you know, his, his children would, would hear him up there talking, laughing. <laughs> this, this was not, you know, just just writing. This was just like, you know, performing, expressing, putting pouring his whole self into it. He, I mean, he, the man could not do anything calmly. So, did, did, he, so, did he typically I, write at home? Sorry? Did he typically write at home? Uh, yes, I, I believe he usually did. Uh, in his later years, he actually had a separate little um, 
a little building like a chalet that somebody had given him as a gift and he set it up and, and used it as a place to write in. But even before that, I think he had always written at home. Cause when we went to London last year, we went to a pub that claims to have been the place where he wrote our mutual friend. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's true or if it's just something they do to bring in the American tourists. He, well, it, you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I, it's, it's, I mean, there are many who know more about his writing habits than I do. And it's possible he could have he could have done a bit of writing in a pub. But uh, with his habits and the whole acting things out, well, that's I what don't I was think he would have been able to get away with it for long before they kicked him out. So Plus, um, he, was su- he was super famous. Mm-hmm, he was. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't remember where our mutual friend falls in his career. So maybe it'd be early enough where people wouldn't recognize him. Actually, it was his last completed novel. He wrote... He wrote The Mystery of Edwin Drood after that, but he died before he could finish it. So our mutual friend was his last finished one. So it, it came very late. So yeah, it'd be like Taylor Swift writing a song in a coffee shop, right? He'd never, he'd never be able to write. I wouldn't think, just because yeah, people it, would it, recognize him. I think it would have been very difficult. Well, I've been steering a conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles in the spirit of hospitality, we'd like to let our guests have the last word. What haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? Oh, goodness. It feels like we've covered so much, and um, it's been um, so much fun. I think um, well, you know what? I'd like to just call attention for a minute to um, my the the woman who wrote the foreword for this, Karen Swallow Pryor, just because um, you know, I'm still bowled over that she she was able to do this for me because uh, we, we've we've been friends for a while. Uh, but she's she's a pretty well known writer in her own right, and and the demands on her time are enormous. I mean, she teaches, yeah. she writes, she she does so. She much. She seems to spend most of her time fending off these uh, the guys over at the Southern Baptist Convention who <laughs> think she's an agent yeah. of the. Oh God! Critical Marxism or whatever. She deals with trolls. I mean, she she does it all. God bless her. I, I, she is she is superwoman. And um, so when I approached her to write this forward, and uh, she agreed to do it, I mean, I've I was blown away that she she was able, she was generous generous. Uh, sorry, she was generous enough with her time and energy to do that. I mean, it's positively Dickensian how generous she was. So. Um, I want to recommend, you know, do not skip the forward. It is awesome. A very talented writer wrote it, and I'm so, so grateful that she did. Well, we've been talking to Gina D'Alfonso about her new book, The Gospel and Dickens. That book's out now from Plow Books. You can get a link to buy it at our website uh, at christianhumanist.org, where you'll find the show notes for this uh, this episode and many other episodes. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. I'm Michael Farmer. Thanks for listening.